where the temperatures in Jerusalem average in the 80s and 90s, sometimes even up to 100 degrees. And so many of the people in these crowds of religious pilgrims that are flocking into Jerusalem are probably at least a little thirsty. And so Jesus masterfully uses this topic of thirst to make a very critical point about living a life that is pleasing to God. Now last week, we learned that Jesus' brothers wanted him to go with them to make that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. And that was one of the three major feasts that all Jewish men are required to attend, if at all possible. Now, that feast takes place in September, and it celebrates the, the fall harvest of, of grapes and olives. And I mentioned last week, it's kind of like Israel's national campout, if you will. All of these pilgrims come from all over, travel to Jerusalem, they build these temporary huts and booths out of, out of sticks and branches and whatever they can find along the walls of Jerusalem, out in the wilderness area, and then they attend this festival in the city. It lasts seven days. It's a holy gathering. And then on the eighth day, they have this grand time of worship. And it is in that setting that we find Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus declined to go with his brothers. He said, nope, I'm not going with you guys. Their motives were suspect. And we learned last week, John told us, they didn't believe in him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. And so Jesus' answer when they said, hey, come with us, show your stuff off. If you really got it, people are going to buy into you. Jesus' answer to them was, my time has not yet fully come. But then we know that Jesus did attend that feast. He went up a few days after his brother, after his brothers, and, and at first it was in secret. But then he began to teach publicly. And as we've seen, as has been the case all along, the people are amazed by Jesus' knowledge, by his authority as he speaks to the crowds. Some of the people are persuaded by Jesus' teachings and statements, but then others, others think that he's crazy. Some even say that he's possessed by a demon. And then some even seek to have him arrested for blasphemy because of his claims to be from God. Now all of that sets the stage for our text today in John 7 verses 37 through 39. This brief text is the second segment of Jesus' teachings in this chapter. And it occurs, as you see, on the last day of the festival. John calls it the great day. It's that eighth day, that big day that concludes everything. There, uh, part of the ceremonies during the festival were what were called the water ceremonies. And these were a very important part of the celebration. So each day, a priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam. He would take a golden pitcher, dip it out, and then he would carry it back to the temple with the crowds following him, and he would pour it into a silver bowl next to the altar, accompanied by musicians and choirs. And as the priest poured out that water, he would pray to the Lord to send rain. And the people would respond with chants, and prayers. And this was a part of the, their, their culture and their worship tradition. And that took place for seven days straight. But then this was the last day. 
the greatest day of the feast. This was the, the climax, if you will. And on this day, the people would make their way into the city. They would all wear their best, most festive clothes. This was a big party. Each worshiper would carry a special configuration of branches, fig leaves and palm leaves and whatnot. And then as they began to assemble in the city, the people would break up into three groups. Now remember, this is thousands of people. Some of them would remain there at the temple. Another group would go uh, in a procession outside the city and they would gather willow branches to bring back to adorn the altar there in the center of the temple with this leafy canopy. And then the third group would follow that priest in that procession down the valley to the pool of Siloam for a final time. And when he reached the pool, he would fill his golden pitcher that final time from the waters of Siloam. And then music would be played along the way as they marched back into the temple proper. The timing for all of this was very carefully orchestrated so that all three groups would reach the temple just as the morning sacrifice was being laid on the brazen altar. And a threefold trumpet blast would go out, welcoming the priest as he entered through what was called the water gate because he was carrying the water in. And so as the priest then ascended the rise, the steps that went up to the altar, he was joined by a second priest. That second priest was carrying a pitcher of wine for the drink offering. And so these two priests would come together and there would be two silver funnels that would lead down to the base of the altar. Into the, the easternmost funnel, the wine would be poured. And at the same time, in the westernmost funnel, the water would be poured. And by the way, all through the Old Testament scriptures, we see that wine and water often represent God's spirit. And so this is a magnificent ceremony as the priests make these, these uh, picturesque movements of pouring water and wine. And all while they're doing that, they're, they're pouring the water and the wine out. The people are shouting. They're excited. They want the priest to raise his hand. And immediately after the water is poured, the people begin a, a, a chant, a response. Uh, if you look in your Bible in Psalms 113 through 118, you'll see some of the chants and some of the responses that they would use during this ceremony, all focusing on God's faithfulness, all reminding them, uh, reminding God of his promises to the people. And so it was a, a very elaborate ceremony and everything would come to this great moment of joy. And then, built into the ceremony, there is a moment of silence. And so I want you to picture this. A hush falls over this crowd of thousands of people as the priest raises his hands. But on this particular day, something different, something unique, something unexpected happens. In that moment of silence, you've all been maybe in a crowd where they say, we're going to take a moment of silence. Picture that, a moment of silence. From the back of the crowd comes a voice, booming out. And I want us to read together what happens next from our text today, John 7, 37 through 39, the words on the screen, uh, seven, we'll read 37 and 38. Let's begin. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So do you picture what's going on there? The hush falls. Jesus cries out. Can you just picture all the heads swiveling? Who in the world is speaking in this sacred moment? It must have been just a spine-tingling moment, an unforgettable sequence of events with this completely unexpected climax, mind-blowing for the people that are there. And in essence, Jesus seizes control of this most important and sacred moment in worship. And what does he do? He makes it all about himself. Come to me, Jesus says. Now, if you've been tracking with us through John, you might notice that this is not the first time that Jesus has spoken about water that changes our lives, right? You might remember back in chapter 4 when we kind of dropped in on a private conversation between Jesus and that Samaritan woman at the well. And while he's answering her questions, he speaks to her about the, the water of life that only God could give. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then Jesus went on to tell her, everyone who drinks from this water, the water at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so I want us just folks to think about this for a moment. What is it that Jesus promises here? He is promising a spring of spiritual water that leads to eternal life and it is free. It never runs dry. And that promise is for all who call upon Jesus in faith. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to explore together how we, we can receive this spiritual water that is available only through Jesus. But in order to receive it, we have to first respond. And the first response that I want to take a look at from our text is what we're going to, we're going to call it the call. The call. Jesus in that moment, in the Feast of Tabernacles, stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts. If anyone thirsts. It's kind of odd, isn't it? There's water everywhere, right? There's the priest up there pouring out water. There are pools all over in the, the temple courtyards, all over the place. Uh, there's no lack of water within the city of Jerusalem. They have an elaborate system to bring water into the city. It's, it's, it's unique and it's special. And so there's water aplenty. And all of a sudden Jesus is crying out, if anybody is thirsty, why would he call out to the thirsty like this? Were the people at the festival really thirsty? Really? You know, we often don't recognize it when we are physically thirsty. I was doing a bit of reading this week, and I, I, I read that we don't usually experience thirst until we're already dehydrated. Isn't that interesting? Now, you're probably like me. You've probably heard from doctors and dietitians and health and wellness experts, coaches, workout people. Everybody says what? Got to drink more water. Drink more water. We're thirsty. We're thirsty, and often we don't even know it. 
This, this last week I also learned an, an interesting new to me word. And the word is this, polydipsia. Polydipsia, the, the root dipsia means thirst. And that, that preface poly means excessive or abnormal. So you put those together into a compound word. Polydipsia means excessive thirst that happens on a sustained basis. And so polydipsia is the kind of thirst that will compel a person. They're so thirsty they will drink literally any liquid, even urine or blood. So I want you just to imagine being so tormented with thirst, so thirsty to the extent that you don't even think twice about drinking blood. Now I also read that extreme heat or extreme thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. That was what happened to an Algerian man by the name of Laglag. He and his companion, whose truck broke down while they were crossing the Sahara Desert. And so according to the story, when the truck broke down, Laglag and his assistant dug a shallow trench underneath the truck to shield themselves from the oppressive sun and heat during the day when temperatures could reach as high as 136 degrees. Imagine that. Now they had a bit of food with them, but they didn't eat much, fearing that it might aggravate their thirst. And so for three weeks, they endured the agony of thirst. Once their water was gone, there was no more. And after three weeks, finally unbearable, uh, un unable to, to bear this, this polydipsia any longer, they resorted to drinking the water in the truck's rusty radiator. So essentially, they drank poisonous water in order to survive. Now, friends, I want us to think about this from another angle. I want us to think about it from this angle, that there is another kind of polydipsia. Another type of spiritual thirst, a spiritual polydipsia. In Psalm 42.1, there's that wonderful verse. We even have a song about it. The psalmist expresses his intense longing for God by painting a picture of this very thirsty deer searching frantically in the woodlands for a drink of water as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Why water? Because there is no substitute for water, is there? Water literally is life. And when it comes to quenching thirst, water is integral. But I think this analogy holds true for spiritual thirst as well. Nothing can sp satisfy spiritual thirst, our spiritual longing. Nothing except God himself. You see, he is the fountain of living water. He's the one from whom all life comes. That's why in the next verse there in Psalm 40, 42, the psalmist continues on and he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's thirsty for this encounter with the living God. So like those two men who experienced polydipsia while they were crossing the Sahara Desert, you know, many people today are experiencing extreme spiritual thirst. People all around us, desperate for relief. 
We try all kinds of things, don't we? Substances, drugs, alcohol, food. Some people find uh, relief or try to seek relief through, through sex or through pornography. Others seek relief through, through, uh, for their spiritual polydipsia by pursuing all kinds of things. Wealth or power, career, success, remodeling projects, acquiring material possessions. The list could go on. We seek to be fulfilled in our spiritual thirst. But guess what? None of those things. None of those things ever works. They don't work because we can't solve spiritual thirst with physical things. We solve our spiritual polydipsia by using spiritual solutions from God. God is the creator of the universe and everything in it, including us. It's like he's the, the manufacturer, if you will. And so he's the only one who knows how his creation functions, what can cause a breakdown, and how it can be fixed. That's why Jesus starts with a call. If anyone thirsts, he says that because we all thirst. We just need to identify that it is a spiritual thirst. But he doesn't stop, does he, with just issuing a call. Responding to that call is only the beginning. And so next we see that to receive the spiritual water that Jesus offers, we must respond to the invitation. The invitation. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. There's the invitation. If we don't know we're thirsty, we often won't do anything about it. But then there's another problem, and that is that just because we realize we're thirsty doesn't mean we can do anything about it. You see, this is no ordinary invitation. It is the invitation of God himself. When God graciously calls and invites a person, he draws them to himself with his strength and ability. And it's a good thing, too, because... Friends, it is the sick who need a doctor. It is the poor who need help, the broken who need fixing, the weak who need to be cared for. And that is our God. He is a God who helps the needy, who seeks out the thirsty, who draws them to himself. You might remember back in chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so we might picture, picture it like this. The Lord extends his invitation. He's like a gracious host to all who would come to accept it. But also we have to note that Jesus said, let him come to me to drink. You see, the right location is important. Jesus said, come to me. I suppose we've all seen the TV commercials, haven't we, for beer or soda you know, it's the ultimate whatever drink that you have to quench your thirst. And the pictures are of people frolicking on the beach or around a campfire having a great time. Just drink that beverage and your life is going to be so great, right? But we know that that's all temporary and, and what? Even deceptive, isn't it? 
Jesus is the only one that can quench our thirst, the only one that can save us from our spiritual famine. Remember that when Jesus was speaking to that Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, he said that whoever drinks of the physical water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of his spiritual heavenly water will what? Never thirst again. Never I want you to think about what Jesus says there. A spring of spiritual water that leads to eternal life. It is free. It never runs dry. And it is for all who call upon him in faith. Those who have already accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior no longer experience spiritual polydipsia. They know they know that there is only one solution to that spiritual thirst, and it is not wealth or politics or stuff that this world offers. It is accepting Christ's invitation to be born again, to start fresh, to drink fully. And when we do, we receive help from the Spirit. He removes our spiritual thirst. And progressively, we begin to experience peace, assurance, comfort. And sometimes, friends, it makes no sense that we would have peace or comfort in this crazy world that we live in. But guess what? We do. Because the spiritual water is flowing through us. What a blessing! To be in a situation where one never need thirst again. That is what Jesus says here. And so he issues a call. He issues an invitation. And then third, I want you to notice that to receive the spiritual water available only through Jesus, we must respond to the promise. The promise. Notice verse 38. John quotes Jesus who says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so here, Jesus brings the call and the invitation together. And when we respond in belief, when we come to him and drink, everything changes. Everything changes. The living water provided by Jesus now begins to flow through us. I want you to understand how spectacular this is. What is he saying here? The living water we so often ascribe to Jesus. Yes, it is in Jesus. It's from Jesus. But it comes into us. Wow. This is not just some quick drink from a fountain, folks. This is not a bottle of our, our favorite beverage. This is not a, a fill-up or a top-off at the gas station. Friends, this is the promise of the source being placed inside of us. God's Holy Spirit coming to live in you and live in me when we trust in Him. And it's not temporary and it doesn't come and it doesn't go. It's there continually. That reminds me of another personal conversation that we looked at a few weeks ago. We dropped in on a conversation between Jesus and a Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus. That was back in chapter 3. And you remember in that conversation, as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter his, his, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly. Remember when Jesus says truly, truly, it's something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? The water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness. But its thirst-quenching effects were temporary. Here at the Feast of the Tabernacles, that, uh, what are they doing? They're celebrating God's provision in the wilderness. Jesus offers then living water that quenches all thirst and is a source of life eternal. And then in verse 39, John kind of jumps into the, the, the situation here and, and he gives us a note of explanation, an important note so that no one will miss the significance. And so in verse 39, he says, Now, Jesus said this, this living water, Jesus said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were yet to receive. For as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John is just kind of telling us, all right, this is what happened, but something really good is going to happen when Jesus is glorified. And so after his death and his burial and his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, it begins to be offered to all who would call on him. Water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. They are connected all through the Gospel of John. We've seen them so many times already, haven't we? We're only to chapter 7. We've seen it with Nicodemus. We've seen it with a Samaritan woman. Now we see it here. John makes this connection once again. Jesus talking about living water, talking about the Spirit which believers in him were yet to receive but would receive when they are born again. The Spirit will be the abiding presence of God himself with the disciples, continuing the work in them and through them and so this feast, this festival of tabernacles celebrated God's presence and provision for Israel in the, in the wilderness. But not only did God provide manna from heaven and water from rocks, God's very presence dwelt with the people. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? God's Shekinah glory, his presence lived with them literally where? In a tabernacle, a tent right there with them. But now, Jesus changes everything. The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. God has come to tabernacle among us once again, to dwell in a tent. What is a tent? A temporary dwelling. And so he comes to live in us in these temporary dwelling things that we call bodies. God's Spirit comes to live within us Jesus is speaking about this promise at the Festival of Tabernacles. All that that festival celebrated, deliverance and presence and provision of God, all of that finds new significance in God sending his Son to live among us, tabernacle among us, and then the sending of his Spirit to abide, to live with us for how long? 
forever. So that rivers of living water may flow from within us and out to a thirsty world. This is a significant, significant truth in the Gospel of John. That's why I stopped here in the chapter 7 and just looked at these couple of verses because this is a life-changing truth, friends. And I believe it can be a life-changing truth for those of us that already know Jesus because we need to realize how powerful His Spirit living in us is. This is not a promise just for those who have yet to know Jesus, but it is for us who already know him as well. The USS Indianapolis was a battle cruiser that was sunk by Japanese torpedoes in the Pacific Ocean in July of 1945. The ship was returning from a mission which had included delivering the enriched uranium needed for the first atomic bomb. Once it was hit by the torpedoes, the ship sunk in 12 minutes with 1,195 sailors aboard. Roughly 300 died in the initial sinking. And so for the 900 survivors, they spent a harrowing four days in the hot sun of the Pacific Ocean with very little or no food or water. Some of them died from injuries sustained during the sinking. Some died from the elements and exposure. Some were killed in shark attacks. But a temptation the survivors faced in their state of extreme dehydration was the desire to drink the seawater. Polydipsia. Only 316 of the nearly 900 who survived the sinking survived the four days at sea. The chief medical officer recounted his own harrowing experiences. Listen to his words. He says, There was nothing I could do. Nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep the men from drinking the water. He goes on and he says, When the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear ocean, we were so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, he wrote, the real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and food, and they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember striking the ones who were drinking the salt water, trying to stop them. They would get so dehydrated. Friends, there is living water that Jesus promises to those who come to him in thirst. And anything else, anything else we drink will lead to our death and our eternal destruction. He calls us. He calls us to know him. He invites us to drink deeply. He promises us, us life. And so have you come to want him as one who is thirsty? Do you understand that thirst? Do you understand that Jesus provides the living water and that he is the only source of true water? 
And so I want to just close with this question. What source are you drinking from? What source are you drinking from? Are you drinking from a rusty radiator full of poisonous water? Are you drinking from the deceptive sources that are encircling us all over in our culture, in this world? Or are you drinking from the living water that only Jesus can provide? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for your word that is living and active and true and real. And Father, today I pray, Lord, that you will stir our hearts. Lord, that we will pursue the water. Lord, that we will thirst, that we will pant after your water, Lord. And Father, when we sense that we're drinking from sources that just aren't good for us, that are deceptive or false or poisonous, Lord, may we be on the alert and may we flee those things and return to your pure water that cleanses us and sustains us throughout eternity. Father, bless us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, each Sunday I always make this statement that our elders are here to pray with and for you. And so in just a moment, we're going to have communion together. But today, after you have communion, if you'd like to make your way back to the prayer corner in the back there, some of our elders will be there. And they would be privileged and honored to pray with and for you, perhaps to talk with you about your spiritual thirst or steps that you need to take to drink deeply. Perhaps you have a need for someone else, someone else on your heart. They would be honored to pray with you for them as well. I urge you to take advantage of that as our, our elders, our spiritual fathers, pray for this congregation. But just now, we're going to share together in communion. And communion is a time to...